This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. Last week, I had Janet Todd on the show to talk about her recent novel, Don't You Know There's a War On?, set in the mid-20th century. But this week, she's graciously agreed to come back and talk about her historic work, especially focusing on women writers of the long 18th century. Welcome back, Janet. Thank you, Heather. Delighted to be with you again. I mentioned in last week's show that I was so excited to talk with you because I'd used two of your books when researching previous shows specifically one on poet, playwright, and spy Afro-Ben, and the other on larger-than-life, gender-bending Mary Frith, also known as Mall Cutpurse. You've written about many other women, of course, but those two came to my attention because of how they touch on questions of same-sex desire and gender transgression. Yeah. Ben left plausible evidence that she loved women as well as men, and though my own personal interpretation is that Frith may well have been asexual, the fictional portrayal of her in Middleton and Decker's play, The Roaring Girl, is strongly suggested to be bisexual. So I'd like to hear how you view understandings and depictions of women's homoerotic desire in the early modern period. Okay, well, that's a big one. <laughs> I think I'll concentrate yeah. on Afro Ben, whom I know much better and who, of course, wrote so much. So therefore, you can... You can get to her rather than looking at people's depictions of her. Um, I think that what's really, I think what one has to say right at the beginning is that the 17th century is not like us. Um, I think there is a a performativity of what they are doing pretty well all the time. Um, They are masked. They talk about masks. They talk about putting on personalities, personae and so on. Um, so it's very difficult to say exactly what they were thinking, who they loved, and, and, and whether they were, in our terms, bisexual or heterosexual or whatever. With Ben, who is rather different when she writes poetry that one assumes is a little more personal and maybe, though not definitely, um, has an autobiographical resonance, um, she's very different there from the way she presents women in her plays and mm-hmm. the way she presents herself in her prefaces. And I think in these poems, which are clearly the most obvious in terms of looking at her sexuality, um, I would say that she she loved beauty. She loved beauty in a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. And she mm-hmm. didn't seem to much worry about how it was clothed. Um, one or two of her poems clearly suggest that the love object is, is a, well, let me say clearly, nothing is absolutely clear in Afro-Ben. I mean, she begins her life as a spy, and I think her, her way of writing is always slightly in masquerade. She would be able to slip out of it, you know, she can slip away from anything that she doesn't quite want to say. I get the feeling that, to a large extent, uh, she invented her own life as she presented it to people. 
Yes, I think we don't. I mean, I wrote her life, and I have to say, I had to use an awful lot of imagination to do so because she hides it, Um, and she she clearly means to hide it. Every now and again, you get a real glimpse. You see a debt that she hadn't paid, or you see her begging to the king for for money, or you know, there are little moments of absolute reality. But most of the time, she's presenting herself either in that pastoral world in which everything is possible and society does not rule and desire can go and be polyvalent or love what it wishes. Um, She's presenting herself in that world, but whether she ever thought that that's how she, a woman in the actual society of the time, which is totally patriarchal, could exist, um, one can't really know. I mean, I think she is so amazing because, of course, if you go a couple of generations on, the openness with which she talks about desire and sexuality, whether it's her desires for women or for men, um, is absolutely impossible. No woman mm. could write in by what 1750, seventeen twenty could write in the way that Afro Ben had written. Interesting. And I think just to, to to add to that, I mean, I think. She thought she could write like this because there weren't any really professional women writers before her. So she wrote like the boys. I think she thought, well, you know, I'm here with the chaps and we're all writing this sexy stuff. I can do it. But by the time you get into the 18th century, there are loads of women writers. And I think the pen becomes gendered. You know, you, it, women write in one way and men write in another. And Ben was, of course degraded by then. And and I think that's something that we've seen across time very often that when a woman is the the only person entering a a, a a public field that she has a bit more freedom to figure out what she's doing on her own and once you establish this is how women do this thing now you become constrained. I think that's very true that's very acute. I think something like that happens so in a very different period and with much more modernity with another woman I have spent a lot of time with which is Mary Wollstonecraft uh-huh. she again thought she was the first of a new genus well no she wasn't because there were many of women writing <coughs> and writing for money before her but nonetheless putting herself out so clearly in that sort of philosophical and political way was something again that um, was new and for a long time women couldn't do it again. And she is just like Afro Ben, she is vilified. And although many women in private obviously admired her and her works are read, she herself is is not allowed really as a, a as an icon or as a, a model for anybody. I want to uh, reach back to something you were saying about how your perception is that Afro Ben loved beauty regardless of the physical form it came in. And I think that's interesting because when we try to get a handle on romance, sexuality, desire in the past, we're always matching it up to models that we have. And those models themselves are very complex and structured for how we, how we label things. And getting people to, to imagine a society in which the gender of your object of desire was almost irrelevant. That's hard for people to do. 
I think it is. There were periods when the hermaphrodite is the standard of beauty. And to some extent, I think this is this is what Ben seems to think. At least she, she writes about the beautiful youth rather often. Um, mm. And she has a very interesting, although she, you know, she presents herself after all as a very strong woman up there with the boys uh, writing plays and being more successful, actually, than any other uh, male play, playwright. At the same time, when she writes her poetry, she writes about an extraordinary passivity in herself, um, a sort of languishing, which she keeps on talking about. Um, and I think she likes people who languish. There's a sort of <laughs> sensuality about it, you know, the, the sort of lying down, the, the swooning, the, the, um, the heat of desire. It's, it's, it's very rarely excitingly noisy and violent <laughs> and when it is then it's it's shocking there's a she's got a very good poem that forms part of Abdulaza um love in fantastic triumph sat but even there he's actually sitting down <laughs> mm. but that's that's violent and and sadistic and love is often like that romantic love but sex is not sex is you know sex is fun and it's seems to me a lot of um a lot of lying around. <laughs> and you, you also mentioned that uh, a lot of her writing exists in sort of this, this pastoral Ar Arcadia, you know, set apart from the ordinary world. Now that I know was a feature of literature of the time, that that was um, how people, you know, expressed a some of the, uh, the, the work that they were producing. But do you think that it was a way of handling the, the impossibilities of certain things in ordinary life, that, that you could imagine certain relationships, certain experiences in this, this unreal place because they were so impossible to live in ordinary life? I think, I think that is possible. Um, I mean, it was a, obviously a male and female mode. Everybody yeah. wrote in it. Um, and it's, I suppose it's a, it was a way of, of um, getting the glamour too of the court into the into, into the um, countryside. But yes, I mean, they, they, one has to make the difference. There is the pastoral, which um, often mirrors the ordinary world, where um, you know shepherds are cruel and and mm. ladies and shepherdesses are are um, there and are pursued and they give their charms. So which other women that you have researched would you recommend that people look at for understanding same-sex relationships of any type uh, in the early modern period? So whether it's friendships or romances or whatever, who's interesting? Well, well, I think um, certainly Afro Ben. <laughs> I'd put her up there right at the beginning. Um, so the early modern period really stops at about 1800, I'm uh, 1700 rather, I'm assuming. Um, uh, well, okay, so so let's let's take it. Or the whole period. Century. Yeah. Well, the whole period, I, I would also put Mary Wollstonecraft because she so clearly loved another woman. Now, whether it's sexual, I don't think you can talk about, um, you know, what they actually did in bed because apart from... Um, one or two amazing people who left their diaries, <laughs> yes. um, as we know. 
they don't say, and they certainly don't put it into letters and novels. So one can just say there was a very close, um, passionate sometimes, and um, certainly intimate relationship between women. Um, and that's there with Mary Wollstonecraft. Her first love is, is clearly Fanny Blood. And I think that goes on quite a long time. Um, what's quite painful about her is that she clearly, while she goes on caring about Fanny up to the very end and, and keeps mementos of her, she wrote a novel that almost repudiates her or, or suggests that she was inadequate in some way. And I've always found this perhaps the most painful aspect of a woman, Mary Wollstonecraft, whom I admire hugely. So I would say that's somebody to read, um, and particularly Mary of Fiction, which is where she describes her relationship with Fanny Blood. And perhaps more to the point, her, her letters, which are very wonderful and um, really describe the struggles of a woman who feels all this passion and doesn't really know how to express it socially, or perhaps isn't allowed to. So I would, I would say them. And then, of course, there's novels. And um, oddly, I think there, there's Francis Sheridan, there are people um, who often write letters to each other, but, and, and there's all the blue stockings, there's their letters. Some of those have a, a homosocial, if perhaps not always homoerotic age. There is a sort of intimacy with each other that is certainly surpassing anything they have with husbands or, or men. Um, and then the books that I always thought brought it home to me most um, is, is, of course, by a man. And that is um, Samuel Richardson's Clarissa, mm -hmm. where the love of Clarissa and Anna Howe is extremely strong um, and is set against uh, the violent and predatory love or, or lust, one might say, and desire for power um, of men. And Obviously, uh, Clarissa comes to a very unhappy end, but Anna goes on living, and she does marry. She marries uh, marries a man in the way that people did and do. But her love was always, I think, for Clarissa, and it's it's it's. I think it's a very very powerful depiction of that sort of love. Yeah, I I think I may agree with you in that when we're looking at these passionate friendships of the past. And the question of, well, did they or didn't they in bed, to me, that's almost irrelevant because, I mean, for goodness sakes, you know, not everybody today has a, you know, a sexual relationship with the people they're in love with. And I, I am interested in your general take because you've written a book um, that, that, by the way, I bought it immediately as soon as I looked it up, Women's Friendship in Literature which it says you, you, you said in the introduction that you wanted to prove Virginia Woolf wrong, that there are no true women's friendships in literature. Um, and I've recently on my blog been going through a whole series of uh, studies of women's same-sex friendships in the 17th through 19th centuries, and a lot of different takes on how, how friendship worked in the dynamic of people's lives and how it interacted with romance eroticism. So what's your overall take? I know this is a big question. What's your overall take on the whole romantic friendship question? Well, I don't know about 
take can I just mention thank you for for mentioning that book I it, it's funny I wrote that in the 1970s and um I think it was sort of this is rather putting it rather um grandly it was a bit before its time um people weren't really talking about that at that point and um I remember it I remember the reviews very well because I had a really stinking review from Anita Bruckner who was in the, in the TLS and I I love Anita Bruckner's books it was really so painful and she said um and I remember these things because you do remember bad reviews in a way they they sear the mind wonderfully um she said that it was she didn't really criticize the book but she said it should not have been written because anything that pulled women away from the heterosexual romance was dangerous um and i presume she meant dangerous to their happiness mm. and i thought this was a very curious thing um but then when i got back to england um some years later from america i realized that actually things hadn't i mean obviously in in, in certain circles everything was always possible but that the big majority of society had not moved very far and there was still uh, a, so almost a disbelief that um romantic passionate very very fulfilling friendships could really occur and i'm not sure why this this is because i mean england with its its tradition of boarding schools um, i would would know a good deal about it i mean i went to a boarding school uh, and so really all those as teen years when um sexuality is coming in um we were incredibly ignorant so we didn't know much about anything but there's no doubt that all those feelings whatever might be one's ultimate bent were directed to other girls and this would i mean and the same obviously happens with with in boys boarding schools with boys um but and then i thought a bit more about it and i thought perhaps rather like the restoration people would often say well it's that's fine it's just a phase and it's a way of keeping girls out of trouble yeah they're not going to get pregnant like that it's safe i think so um and at the same time like the generation before of course it was full of um uh, or grandparents full of, of women who were um sort of unnecessary you know that after the first world war there were just so many more women than men and many women lived together for for convenience and and in that time it didn't seem a problem and i i just i also remember hearing somebody who would say you know they they got a single bed but you know it was just to be cozy it it it, <laughs> it wasn't said so much was was kept under wraps that's been something of a of a long historic tradition that when it is convenient for society to let women um fulfill each other because they're surplus that there has been less disapproval of it and then when it was important for you know we'll say heterosexual society to draw women back into you know the the, the marriage structure then then suddenly all those female friendships became more suspect it's a cyclic thing isn't it i think i think it is to an extent um 
Yes, it's curious because I mean it doesn't happen. It doesn't that happen after the um, Second World War in the same sort of way. So it it, it may not happen every time. I, it's somewhat cyclical. I think it's it's also place. And I mean I hate to keep coming back to this, but England is so class ridden that it's also class. Yes. Um, when you think of all the 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 um, between the war amazing women, you know, of, it's not only Radcliffe Hall, but um, Romaine Brooks and Natalie Barney, Juno, um, Juno Barnes and um, Gertrude Stein, all these extraordinary women. They're all sort of upper middle class. They're sometimes wealthy and they're jolly well in Paris. They're not in Birmingham. You know, they're in, they form this, this society in which anything is possible because it's, it's out of society in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, again, has been a theme uh, across multiple eras, that if you had the, the social privilege to not care what other people thought of you, to remove yourself from the world, then your experience of same-sex relationships could be very different from those of working-class women. Yes. Who, and I think the, the education, perhaps, to hear about it. I mean, I, I think one should... I mean, now it's very easy to underestimate the ignorance of the past um, or ignorance from, from our point of view. I mean, we always assume <laughs> that we have complete <laughs> purchase on everything and that we are utterly the best. But certainly in, again, lower class or uneducated people, I think that they simply didn't know of other ways of being. They may feel, they may have all those sense of passions and 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 incohate feelings but they didn't give them a name and you have to remember also that in in i know in, in again i go back to uh my parents or earlier i've heard of people who were were put in insane asylums because of lesbian tendencies and that is very very strong yeah and very scary, you know, but, but, but you see, that would never have happened in, in the upper echelons. Um, you'd be perhaps packed off somewhere if you were considered to be so beyond the pale, or you could take your money and your status and go somewhere where it was possible to be yeah. different. That's a, a long English tradition of, of removing yourself from home and going someplace where uh, you could live the life that, that your, your fellows back home might seriously disapprove of. Yes, yes, absolutely. And it's usually known as Paris, isn't it? <laughs> Occasionally Venice, but mainly Paris. <laughs> and I, have you noticed they always live, I mean, in, in England, they will be in a house, an ordinary sort of house sitting in, on the ground with a little garden in front of it. And that will be terribly, terribly constricting. And then in Paris, they'll be in, in an apartment, probably mm. on the first or second floor with a balcony. You know, it's, very, it's very specific uh-huh. where... Things like things can happen that would not be allowed in the society from which they come. Mm-hmm. So changing track a little bit, one of the things I try hardest to communicate in my lesbian history blog is how to try to understand different perceptions and models of sexuality. And that's what we were just talking about, that the question is always you have these feelings, you have these urges, but do you have a model to compare them to, to say, oh, this is what's going on? Yeah. So different models of sexuality and gender, for that matter, in the past, I've, I've been doing a lot of interesting reading on how people understood gender 
at different eras. So given that the goal of my, my blog and podcast is to help people write and appreciate historical fiction that features characters who are both true to the time they're set in and accessible to the modern reader, do you think that's an achievable goal? Can a writer manage both things? You know, I don't know. A little while ago, I would have said, oh, yes, yes, of course, you know, a writer can do everything. But I have a feeling that if you really want to be true to the past, insofar as you can be true to it, it's always imaginative in some way, um, that you probably have to forego some of the, what you regard as ideological gains that they are different, that people will say things and act in ways that are not terribly appealing to the present. So I don't know that it can easily be done. I know that's a big topic in the mainstream romance community these days, of that people want to read historical romances with characters who are very sensitive and consent oriented and do not have negative opinions about their fellow human beings because of I know. or religion. And I know it's very sweet. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a wonderful awareness, but it does then create a separate world that is not necessarily the actual past that you're writing in. I know I think that's absolutely you're you're spot on with that. I mean I'm now rather old, as you know, probably know, um, and having lived through so much, I can just see how, how things so completely change, ways of action, way of looking, way of using your eyes, everything, um, as well as language changes so utterly, and, and in England, particularly accent, you know, the, the past is really very, very distinct. And I think it's it is extremely hard. I mean, one of the, the ways you can see how hard it is, or at least I see it so often, is um, is the cinematic versions of Jane Austen. Oh yeah, um, I'm very much, you know, I'm very much um, an admirer of Jane Austen, and I've been, I edited her works and so on. But she, I, I mean, I do go to the films, but uh-huh. there they are. You know, the 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 film celebrities of the time are always cast in the main character. And they roll their eyes and move themselves and are pert and forward in exactly the way that we want. I have some friends who have a uh, a blog and podcast about uh, historical films and TV specifically. They're called Frock Flicks. Uh, they're yes, shows. they are. And um, they really discuss a lot how you, know, you can tell the era a movie was made in by looking at the hairstyle of the leading lady. Oh, absolutely. Completely and utterly. And, and the makeup. And even when a, a show is trying very hard for historic accuracy, and of course they're focusing on, on costume, not necessarily on gesture or speech, that you know it always seeps through. It is always interpreting always. the time it is created in. Absolutely, absolutely, and completely. I mean, it's it's a, and even a few years on, you can see it. Um, and it's mainly the 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 type of beauty required of the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the man dates too, but but well, obviously, in the way that female dress has changed and changed and changed, where male dress has stayed very solidly itself really since the Regency period. Um, but even men, even the style of of their beauty, you know, is is changing, but it's it's a, it's the way they move their bodies. 
the way they 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 hold themselves, the way they walk, everything, and then of course the way they 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 speak and and look at each other. I mean, it it makes you wonder whether we can in our writing capture something, um, or whether there the problem is that in the reader's mind is the memory of the films or of, of periods that have been created for us uh, by movies. Oh yes, that's that's always a problem. Whether you're whether you're bouncing off of a movie or you're bouncing off of previous authors. I mean, think of the entire genre of Regency romance that is well, not not the entire genre, but so many writers who are rewriting Georgette Hare and not rewriting yes. Jane Austen. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely, and the, and the whole um, fan flicks of, of well, fan fiction, isn't it, of um, <laughs> of Jane Austen, the ones that take her characters and move them into other areas. Now, some of these yeah, are spooks and, and very funny. And you've done one of those yourself. I know. I know. <laughs> you want to I talk know. about that? I did. It's called Lady Susan Plays the Game. But I have to say, in my own defence, <laughs> that I was sort of rewriting. Um, uh, a book that she'd done in and didn't really finish off, uh, no. and that she'd done as a um, as as quite a schematic little novella in in um, letters and very funny it is too. But I don't think I would ever take the characters from the book and go on with them. Uh -huh. I don't think I'd want to do that, um, and I don't really enjoy reading that. I think if you're going to take the characters you do something completely different with them um and i'd almost prefer the putting the zombies in perhaps <laughs> than making making romances you know for the children of elizabeth bennett and the bingleys and so on but i mean you can i think it could be done in the way that for example well the obvious one would be jean reese with the wide sargasso sea mm -hmm. um taking off charlotte bronte i yeah. mean that is that is a great work in its own right but I don't think it's easy to do that with Jane Austen, who is a social satirist in the end. And I think we do better to satirize our own period, perhaps, mm -hmm. um, than try to, you know, try to carry on with hers. But, but you know, it's a free for all, and we make of her what we want. But I, I think it's a shame if we think that the films are what she wrote. I think that is 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 a shame. And on the flip side, you know. People should enjoy writing whatever they want to write. Absolutely. As both a historian and a historical novelist, what advice would you give to writers who want to take up the challenge of writing historical fiction? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't presume for a start. I certainly wouldn't presume. <laughs> but, but if pressed, I think I would say just keep writing, just keep reading um, the writing of the period so that you get the timbre of the voice the sound of the voice as it were the 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 inflection of the sentences the kind of, of statements they make when they're just making conversation how they fill in their time so i think i would i would just say read and read and read and mm. then probably write and write and write and <laughs> see what it sounds like but it's it's never feel that you've you're writing at, you know, you, you have caught the period. I mean, I should be very interested. I've just read um, Hilary, Hilary Mantel's um, final part of the trilogy of, of Thomas Cromwell, 
Right. And so it is a magnificent work. It's it's huge and and immense and and wonderful. I I would be very fascinating. I won't live long enough to know, but I would love to know what people think of that in 40, 50 years' time. Mm -hmm. While we admire it so much now, what will it look like? Will it look like something that was absolutely written in 2020? Uh And it's talking about that period. It's quite possible. Yeah. That the the squeamishness um, that we have about certain things is not the squeamishness that they may have then. And vice versa. So I, it, it's so difficult, isn't it? There is only time to make judgments with. I've been teaching. I, I was teaching for 50 years, basically. Um, so I've lived with the the old canon of English literature, largely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only since retirement that I've had the time, A, to write my own novels, which I really always wanted to do. I mean, I, I became an academic for money and for no other real reason. <laughs> Um, and I would love to, if I'd had the, the the courage and the backup, I would have tried to write fiction right from the start. Um, but I think I would like to know more about different sexualities, but not so much about explicit sex in novels. I'm not that keen on that at all. <laughs> but but the passions, the passions between people, because that's what it's about, the mm-hmm. making of other kinds of families. Yes. The making of relationships, the other sorts of coming together, um, as the old family and kin have, have largely fallen away, what are we putting in its place? I think that those sort of things I would like to explore more, and I want to read more of books that deal with that, whether it's heterosexual, lesbian, whether it's it's neither, whether it's just about people coming together. Um, I think I think I want to explore all that, both in what I write and what I read. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. I've really enjoyed having you on the show. Well, thank you, Heather. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.